you remain standing out of respect for God's word now as I read our sermon text, Mark 7, verses 24 to 30. This is the inspired word of God. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Speak to us now through it. Speak to us that we might know you better, that we might love you more, and that we might be made more like Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start off today's sermon by going way back. We're going to go way back to Genesis, Genesis 12 specifically. In Genesis 12, you'll remember that, that God called Abram a pagan, out of a pagan land, and called him to, to be his own. He covenanted with him and, and with his descendants. And he promised that, that his descendants would be blessed and that through them all the families of the earth would be blessed. That they would be blessed in order to be a blessing. And that's the goal ultimately, right? That we as the people of God would not just receive God's blessings, but receive them that we might be a blessing to others. Ultimately, to gather a great multitude of worshipers around the throne of God from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And thank God for that. Right? Thank God for that because we are the beneficiaries of that. Right? We tend to think of ourselves within the church as being the in crowd. We're, we're, we're on the inside. We are part of the people of God. And indeed, we are, but it was not always the case. Right? We were outsiders in many ways. Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, this is right after he has proclaimed how we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So when, when Jesus sent the 12 out to spread the gospel to the world, he said, go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We were at the ends of the earth. We are the, the ones who are the beneficiaries of the gospel spreading far 
and wide. And in today's text, we see another person who was an outsider, just like the Ephesians, just like us, a person who was a stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. She had pretty much everything going against her. We see it right there in verse 26. The woman was, well, first off, a woman. And then she was a Gentile and a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged to cast this demon out of her daughter, a woman culturally held in low regard at that time. A Torah-observant male would not even interact with a woman if he came into contact with her. She was a Gentile, ceremonially unclean. According to the Pharisees and their rules, not even one that we could come into touch with again. She was Syrophoenician by birth, a a Canaanite. You'll recall the Canaanites were those who were supposed to be driven out of the land by the people of God. And her daughter was demonized. An evil spirit had control over her daughter. With all these things going against this woman, she still had one thing going for her. The one thing going for her was that she sought Jesus. Truth be told, of course, Jesus sought her first, right? We see from from there in verse 24, he arose and went up to this region of Tyre and Sidon, this region to the north of where they had been, this region uh, that was a Gentile area, very hostile to the Jews. Uh, He intentionally is setting up this meeting with Gentiles and with her in particular. It calls to mind, 1 Kings 17, we don't have time to go into that whole passage today, but in that passage we see the prophet Elijah. We see the widow of Zarephath. We see a a child who who is ill and oppressed by that. And we see miracles done by Elijah. We see this pattern, which is very much the pattern that we have in our text today. We're reminded of that. And he enters into the house and didn't want to know anyone to know. You know, it'd be nice to just kind of catch your breath, to, to relax a little bit, but he's not going to have that opportunity because he could not be hidden. Jesus knew that, of course. He knew that the Syrophoenician woman would come. This is where she sought him. And as she sought him, the first point in our outline, she sought mercy. Immediately, this woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. It's a posture of pleading. It's a posture of worship. It's a posture that says, you are above me. Notice how different it is from the attitude of the Pharisees that we've just seen in these recent passages these last few weeks. The Pharisees who who came before him and the scribes who who all thought that they had all the answers. They thought that they knew everything that was to be known. They thought that they were the in crowd. They thought that they were the ones who had true holiness. They came to them all puffed up, but she came to him. Even though she is of Israel's enemies by birth, even though she is separated from the covenants of promise. She comes to him rightly seeing Jesus for who he is. Matthew, in his parallel account in Matthew 15, says this. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Right? She realizes that he is the king 
of the Jews, the one descended from David, the one who sits on the throne, the one who is the king. And we know about kings. What, what are kings? Kings are, are all powerful, right? Nobody can tell the king what to do. The king is in charge, right? And that, that's part of the reason we, we don't like kings in America, right? Because if he's the king's tell, king, a king told us what to do, we're like, nah, I think we should have some representation, right? No taxation without representation. We should have that. But, but a king, a king can do whatever he wants. He, he tells people what to do and they have to do it. Now, of course, the problem with that king that we're talking about in our history was he wasn't a good king, right? Because a good king not only tells you to do and you have to do whatever he wants, but a good king also cares for his subjects. He takes care of them. He loves them. He, he serves them. And Jesus, of course, is a good king, the best king, the only true king. Well, she, she knew she had no claim on him since he was the king. And so she comes before him and she, she throws herself at his mercy, right? She, she doesn't come at him seeking what she deserved. She comes looking for mercy. That's where we often get things wrong, isn't it? We, we think we deserve something from God. We think he owes us something. I've been watching through uh, the old television show, The West Wing, right? Which from, I, I say old, it's over 20 years old now. Um, but but in, in it, it's the story of, of President uh, Bartlett. A and in this recent episode I saw, uh, he, um, as a devout Catholic, has just recently lost someone very dear to him. And, and they're at the funeral. And after the funeral, he asks the, the secret service to seal off the sanctuary there at the National Cathedral and leave him alone inside with God. Just the two of them. And he's going to do some business with God, as it were. And, and as he's there alone with God, he yells at God. He curses at God. And it's, it's really interesting in this, this scene, which is very powerful. He is angry, but, but it's telling what he brings forth as his reasons for being angry and why he feels justified in his anger. He yells at him, 3.8 million new jobs. That wasn't good. Bailed out Mexico, increased foreign trade, 30 million new acres of land for conservation. Put Mendoza on the bench. We're not fighting any wars. I've raised three children. You see what he, he thinks? He thinks his accomplishments, what he has achieved, what he has done, earns the favor of God, that he deserves to have God bless him and be better to him because of what he has done. He appealed to his achievements, what he had accomplished, to his own merit. I deserve to have things go well, he says. The Syrophoenician woman here in our text today chooses the exact opposite tack, doesn't she? She appeals not to her achievements, but to the character of God. Remember a, a couple weeks ago when we talked about the passage in, in Exodus where, where Moses is talking to God and he wants to behold his glory and God graciously tells him, okay, what I'll do is I'll, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, I'll pass by, I'll say my name and you can kind of catch the afterglow of my glory. Right? And what is it that he says as, as he does this? 
In Exodus 34, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. As he says this name, as he describes his identity, who he is, his personality, his, his, his very character, what is the very first thing he says? He says he is a God merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. How wonderful that we have a God who is merciful and gracious. And the Syrophoenician woman came to him realizing this, looking for mercy and grace. This is what she appeals to. That if we are to appreciate God's mercy and grace toward us, it is incumbent upon us first to acknowledge our great need for it. Right? We can't come as those who, who think we have everything figured out. We can't think, I've got more answers figured out anyway than most people do. We can't be thinking, you know, I'm, I'm mostly a good person compared to those other folks. That's the way the Pharisees and the scribes thought about it, of course, right? That's the way they came. They, they said, we're keeping all these rules. We're pretty good people. And, and all the Jews, for that matter, really thought of themselves as that compared to the Gentiles, right? That at least we're not like those dirty, rotten Gentiles. We may not be perfect, but, you know. Consider, on the other hand, Paul, the Apostle Paul at the end of his life, as he writes 1 Timothy, he sends this letter to Timothy, and in 1 Timothy 1.15 he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Right? His attitude, his mindset, having served the Lord, having given so much of himself, having, having been faithful to God's command for so many years, and serving at such great cost, was to say, I'm still the foremost of sinners, right? And that should be our hearts, minds, our hearts attitude as well. Our mindset should be as one who is a sinner forgiven, not one who has got everything right. No matter how spiritual you become, you never outgrow your need for God's mercy. And that's the first thing the Syrophoenician woman sought. She sought mercy Second thing, she sought wholeheartedly. Right? That's how she came seeking Jesus wholeheartedly. She, she held nothing back. We see verse 26. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She begged him. We, we, we don't like to beg. It's humbling. right? It, it's embarrassing even to beg. We even find it kind of uncomfortable if someone else is begging us or, or begging in front of us. It just, it just makes us feel uncomfortable. Matthew says in his take on this that she was crying out to him. See, she didn't care about appearances. She didn't, she didn't care about her own dignity. She didn't care what anybody thought. She was going to seek wholeheartedly. 
Matthew tells us that, that the disciples came and begged Jesus to send her away, for she is crying after us. She was a, a pest. She was like that fly that sneaks into your house and you're reading a book or you're watching a show on the television and, and, and it just keeps buzzing by you and get out of here. I, you know, you get annoyed by it. It's just annoying. I just wish it was gone. That's how this woman was. She was a pest. Get rid of her, Jesus. But she couldn't be gotten rid of. She didn't care what they thought of her. She only cared that her daughter would be delivered. That's how it is. If your child is tormented or in danger or is deathly ill, you do not care about anything else but taking care of that child. That is what she was focused on. Nothing else matters. She is like the persistent widow of Luke 18, right? Jesus says that this widow came to a wicked judge seeking justice against her adversary, and for a while he refused, but after a while he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, because this woman keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, right? Because she keeps bothering me, Jesus specifically said that this parable was, was a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. That's what this woman's doing. She's praying. She's coming before the Lord. She's asking him to, to take care of her needs, her deepest needs, her, her greatest desires. She's pouring them out to them, and she will not stop asking is there anything in your life that you are praying about that persistently? Shouldn't there be? Aren't there things that, that, that we should be praying about like that, that we should be continually taking to the Lord, not losing heart, not holding anything back, pleading with him, expecting an answer? Our prayer lives should be marked by such prayers, even as the Syrophoenician woman. She was praying wholeheartedly and that she was supremely focused. But there was also another sense in which it was a wholehearted prayer. It was wholehearted in that she had nowhere else left to turn. Right? She didn't have other things that she could put herself into. She was fully focused on Jesus because she knew he was the only option. In our culture, we prize self-sufficiency, right? I was able to get this done by myself. I did it. I was able to take care of it. I accomplished this. We prize that. We, we elevate it. We say, isn't that great? But here we see this woman thinking about things in exactly the opposite way. We think, blessed are those who accomplish things themselves, right? God helps those who help themselves is the familiar saying. But the Bible says, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. David understood this. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not 
despised. This, of course, applies to our salvation, right? Knowing we can't solve the problem of our salvation, the need that we have for forgiveness. We can't accomplish that. Only Christ Jesus can accomplish that. He has accomplished that on the cross, and we need only rest in him. Take his yoke upon yourself, for his burden is easy and light. But it applies to our everyday too. It's not just our salvation. It applies to everything. Everything is a matter of grace. Only God can help us through things. But it wasn't just desperation for the woman. She wasn't just seeking out of desperation. She was seeking with faith. That's our third point there. With faith, a confident trusting in Jesus. Trusting that her prayer would be answered. Right, James 5, 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your prayers can actually have great power as they work? Now, we don't understand that completely because God is sovereign over all things. He is providentially working in our lives. But he has chosen for purposes that only he knows that one of the ways that he will work is through our prayers. And he tells us that our prayers can have great power as they're working. And Jesus also tells us in Matthew 7, those words that we read together earlier today in the Unison Scripture reading. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What would your life look like if God answered every prayer you prayed in the affirmative. Think of all the prayers you've prayed over the last week. If God said, okay, to all of those prayers, how different would your life be today? How different would the world be today? I think, sadly, for many of us, it frankly wouldn't be all that different because we don't pray bold prayers. We don't pray prayers that are, are really asking God for deep and important things. We, we don't ask God for big things we're afraid to ask, we're afraid to seek, we're afraid to knock, but God tells us in his word that we are to do just that. So let's commit ourselves to that. Let's commit ourselves to praying bold prayers, asking God, seeking his power, knocking that we might see him open doors to us. But, but see, her prayer, when I say it was a, a prayer of faith, I don't just mean that it was a prayer that she was believing would be answered, although that's part of it. She's not just believing it would be answered. She's believing in the one who will answer it. She's trusting in the one who answers our prayers, the one who is sovereign over all things. She is trusting in God. We see it here Verse 27, Jesus says to her, <clears throat> let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's likely a proverbial saying that Jesus is, is, is using here, kind of like, you know, uh, the cat's away, the mice will play, right? You're not actually saying somebody is a cat or somebody's mice, you know? You're making a point, using a saying. But that said, the reality is that amongst the Jews, Gentiles were referred to as dogs. That was the common phrase that they used. 
kind of referred to their, their ceremonial uncleanness, much like dogs were unclean. <clears throat> and some point out here that the, the term in the Greek actually is kind of a diminutive term, so it's like a doggy. He called it a doggy, which perhaps he's referring to dogs that were like household pets instead of the wild dogs. But, but that doesn't really make it a whole lot better, does it? Because he's still saying that it's not right to help out the little doggies when we could be feeding the children. It's kind of a, a stinging thing that he has said here. It seems that he's making it perfectly clear that he has no intention of helping her, that he is actually against her. Sometimes we need to trust God even when it appears to all the world as if he is against us. Have you ever been in that situation where you've just said, God, why, why are you doing this to me? Why, why is everything so hard right now, Lord? Why have you taken away such comfort and such peace and given me such torment and such difficulty? Why, oh Lord? In those times, we need to trust in him still. It's exactly what the woman does. She says in verse 28, yes, Lord. And, and I just want to pause there for a second. In all of the Gospel of Mark, how many times do you think a person refers to Jesus as Lord? I'm going to give you a hint. It's less than two. This is the only place in all of the Gospel of Mark that a person refers to Jesus as Lord. This woman, this woman with a pagan heritage from a pagan culture, this woman who had everything going against her, this woman who Jesus himself seemed to be against, who, who had even called her a dog, this woman is the only person in all of Mark's gospel who refers to him as Lord. I'm reminded of that sublime expression of faith in Job 13, 15, where he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet, I will argue my ways to his face. And that's exactly what she does right here. Like the most brilliant of attorneys, she says to Jesus in words that, that Perry Mason couldn't have said any better, right? He, she says, says, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. It was a witty response for sure. But Jesus isn't impressed with its wittiness. He's impressed with the faith that stands behind that statement. And he commends her. He says to her, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. It's not really the statement itself, but the faith that stands behind it, right? In fact, Jesus says in Matthew's version, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was healed immediately. Great is your faith. It's one of just two places 
where Jesus commends somebody's faith in such strong words. This one and the Roman centurion, you remember? He, he in Matthew 8.10, had his faith. Jesus said, in all of Israel, I have not seen such faith. It's interesting that two places where Jesus commends somebody's faith as being so great, both of them are Gentiles, not of the people of Israel, not of the people of God by birth. And so she went home, verse 30, she found her child lying in the bed and the demon was gone. And one would, one would not expect that a woman from a pagan land would trust in Christ. But as J.C. Ryle puts it, it is grace, not place, that makes people believers. The disciples certainly did not expect it. They, they were surprised, and that just may be part of why Jesus went about things in the peculiar way he did here, right? Because normally I think what we do is we look at this story and see it as, as a story about a woman who, who persisted in faith and had her faith vindicated. And there's a lesson in that for us. We too should persist in our faith. We too should find Jesus as the one who answers our prayers. We too should trust in him, wrestling with him like Jacob of old, refusing to let go until he blesses us. Certainly a proper application for this passage. I think we're a little less likely to see it this way, but, but maybe this would be the way we'd see it too. We could see it as the story of a child, a child who was, who was released from the powers of Satan because of the unswerving parental love of another and the power of Christ to deliver. And we remember that we too have a lesson in that and that we were saved from the grasp of the devil and the consequences of our sin by our heavenly father who, who loves us with a steadfast love and the power of Christ Jesus who has delivered us from sin and Satan, and death. And we should trust him today. If you've not trusted in Jesus, trust him now and know him for salvation. Know his love. Know his deliverance. We could see it that way. But I want to offer a third option of how we can see this passage, a third application that I believe might actually be the, the main application that Jesus is going for here. We can see this as a story about the disciples. We can see it through their eyes, see what they saw, learn what they learned, learn that those who are truly the children of God, those who are called to faith by God, are not just the descendants of Abraham. They're not just the in crowd. They're not just the ones who are in the church right now. And therefore, it will be their duty and our duty to take forth the message of the gospel to the world. Not just where it is easy, not just where it is convenient, not just where we expect to receive favorable reception, but to all the world, to neighbors and to family and to friends, whether they've darkened the door of a church or not, and to the ends of the earth where the name of Christ perhaps has not even been proclaimed, that we might lift high the cross. 
and the love of Christ proclaim that all the world might adore his sacred name. Would you pray with me once more? Lord Jesus, it is by your freeing power that we've been released from our bondage. It is by your love that we have been taught how to love. It is by your power that we now go forth. And as we do, we pray that you would conform us to your likeness and send us forth with your gospel on our lips that we might proclaim it to a watching world in all your love, in all your power, in all your peace. Amen. If you're able now, please rise as we sing hymn 287, Lift High the Cross. <laughs>